now what? Now what moments? There are decision points. We come to a fork in the road, and um, I want to talk about a decision point that comes in the life of essentially every believer at some point. Here's how it unfolds. You gave yourself to Christ, and uh, it may have been just an amazing event, and early on, it's just such a pleasure to follow Christ, and it's easy to study Scripture, and you want to know more about Him, and you're ready to minister and serve, and um, in almost every believer's life, there comes a point, sometimes months, sometimes years after that, um, where the, the newness kind of wears off, but... More than that, something really surprises them. Because when you give, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't give your heart to Christ with, with, you know, your fingers crossed, right? Oh, Lord, Lord, I give you all, right? When you were a believer and you gave your life to Christ and you realized, oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble without Jesus. I'm lost. And he literally freely forgives everything you've ever done. There's an incredible awe where you just say, Lord, I'll do anything you want and I'll go anywhere you want me to go. But what's really fascinating is there comes a point where they realize they didn't know what they were saying. 40 years in, I realized when I said all that stuff I said to Dana at the altar, I didn't have a clue. But I meant it, <laughs> right? I mean, so... Something happens when all of a sudden you start realizing how costly it is to give all now as a believer. So, I want to talk about um, this challenge in a series of key concepts you can see. Actually, if you've been in first hour, you realize you get a reprieve today. It's only a page and a half of notes, and it's 14 font, so you got it made. Um, so... Um, uh, I want to start with a, a series of key concepts to help unpack this situation that many of us have found ourselves in as believers. Key concept number one, here's your blank. As a growing Christian, we come to know things about ourselves that a new convert doesn't know yet. Ever happened to you? Oh, I didn't realize I was talking about that, Lord. Key concept number two, it takes time for a believer to discover the level of sacrifice necessary to obey God completely, right? Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. Holy cow, there really is Africa, <laughs> right? So it, it takes time to realize what it means to follow God completely. Key concept number three, most believers come to a point where they recognize that they're still filled with self-interest, and that they don't have either the power or the purity to fully follow through on their commitment. Anybody ever been there? And when this happens, the Christian is faced with a shocking reality. You ready for this? There comes a point of crisis. There comes a point of crisis where they have to make a decision about whether they're going to commit everything to Christ now that they know a lot more about what everything means. At this point, their initial naivete about their ability to surrender to the Lord has been replaced with a brutal clarity. No matter how hard they try to be like Jesus, they can't. Not even as a Christian. 
so much falls so short of what they've promised him. Now, there's a beauty about the honesty and the self-awareness that comes at this point, right? But this is also a really risky time. You know why? Because many theological traditions tell us that that's just the Christian life. That's just the way it is. Sin, repentance, sin, repentance, sin, repentance, till someday we go home in failure and frailty. Many traditions teach that. So while they've been freed from the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin, they haven't been freed from the power of sin, and this is a horrible way to live. But the scripture teaches there's another way. It's called, over and over again, the spirit-filled life. So this morning's message is gonna be about a life-changing truth. Here's your blank. The unbeliever needs the miracle of conversion. Without that, without the new birth, there's no hope for anything. But the believer needs the miracle of Pentecost. Now, before we get into the meat of this message, I want to clear up a few common errors. Actually, this could be an entire series on all the bad theology around this, okay? But here's key concept number one. Let me just knock out a few of them. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is both an event and a process. If you're living on an infilling from 30 years ago, your manna has gone sour, Those who were filled in Acts chapter 2, it's interesting in Acts chapter 4, you know what you hear again? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's fresh, it's got to be new, it's an event and it's a process, okay? And guess what? There's two ditches. There is the, overemphasizing the event and underemphasizing the process, ditch, and the overemphasizing the process and underemphasizing the event, ditch. That always happens. Wesley perfectly described every dichotomous truth in Scripture. You find you can join denominations that are in the ditch, and probably most are. Key concept number two, the event of being filled with the Holy Spirit is only the beginning. Listen, it's only the beginning of the Spirit-filled life. And let me clear up some really bad theology from our own tribe You ready? When you get converted, you get Jesus. And then at a later event, you get the Holy Spirit. That is the stupidest thing that's ever been thought of in Scripture. Listen to this. There's about a million things wrong with this theology, but let me just say that the Holy Spirit doesn't come in doses. When we are converted, God gives all of himself to us, holding nothing back. But he knows we don't know what we're saying at the altar, just like I didn't know 40 years ago when I said at the altar. He knows there will come a point where although he has given all of us, we now know how costly it is to give all of us to him. It's a decision. It's a moment, but it's only the beginning. So... Look again at the life-changing truth. The unbeliever needs the miracle of conversion, but the believer needs the miracle of Pentecost. And has there ever been a greater biblical example than the apostle Peter? 
He had an incredible level of commitment. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to go a lot of, do a lot of scripture today, so get ready. Matthew chapter 26. Um, and uh, Peter is completely all in, and you'll, you'll, most of you will be com- very familiar with these words. Here's where Jesus is say, saying, you're all going to fall away, and says, Peter says, no way. I'm all in. You and me, Jesus. You ready for this? Verse 33 in chapter 26. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. There's no question that Peter meant 100% of what he said. He just didn't have a clue how costly it was going to get, right? He was all in. And now let's look at him. Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial before Caiaphas, right, and the chief priests. And Peter stands nearby, and he knows, he says he doesn't know Jesus to two little servant girls. And now look, verse 73, chapter 26, verse 73. And a little later, the bystanders came up. This is, number th- this is the three strikes you're out, right? A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them for the way you talk gives you away, sounding Galilean. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. So there's no question that Peter was a believer, right? His commitment to Jesus was absolute, but he lacked the power to follow through on what he promised. So was Peter doomed to failure? (laughs) Well, let's pick up the story after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to the Father in Jerusalem. Peter has healed a lame man and he preached a message and 5,000 people come at one time to Christ. And he's got the apostles now thrown in jail, right? So it's the next morning. They've spent the night in jail. Peter stood before the chief priests and remember... He's now going to stand, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. So you're in Matthew, go uh, 4 to the right to, the, to Acts after the Gospels, right? Acts chapter 4. Now remember who he's going to stand before. He's going to stand before who Jesus was standing before while he watched from a courtyard and three times said, no way. Same chief priests he's now going to be in front of, okay? Acts chapter 4, look with me at verse 7. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, isn't that interesting? I thought that already happened back there. New every day, fresh every day. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you and to all of the people in Israel that, remember, the last time we saw him speaking, he said, I do not know the man. And now he's saying to these guys who can kill him, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which he, came, he was really good already at, at user-friendly preaching, wasn't he? But became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven. That has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, 
as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That would preach a series right there. Can anybody recognize you've been with him? And seeing the man who had been healed standing by them, they had nothing to say in reply, but they, when they had ordered them to go outside the council, they began to confer with one another and said, what shall we do with these men for? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not be spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak, to speak no more in the name, this man's name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But listen, we cannot compelled. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Can you believe this is the same guy? Now, we need to understand the amount of time that's happened, gone since the denial. You know, it's less than two months between the denial and this day. So here's a key concept. Write it in. The difference in Peter is so dramatic it's impossible to explain on the basis of a process of growth. There's no way. There's just not enough time. This isn't a little bit better, Peter. This is a completely different man. Peter has only had about eight weeks to grow since he wimped out in front of the servant girls. And the fact is, a human, think about this, a human can grow for a month, a year, a decade, or a century, and they're not going to grow enough to stand fearlessly before their executioners and say, I don't care what you do to me, I'm not going to stop speaking the name. No amount of growth gets that kind of power by itself. So, the only viable way to explain such a dramatic difference in Peter, in such a short amount of time especially, is something big happened in between. Now, some teach, some traditions teach that the big event, and it was a big one, the big event between wimpy Peter and amazing Peter was the resurrection. After all, he had seen Jesus alive. But I believe this text shows us that's not the case, and we're going to actually unpack that to see that the resurrection alone is not what changed Peter in less than two months. Here's the key concept. The knowledge of the resurrection alone didn't bring transformation. To understand this, we need to go all the way back to when Jesus called Peter. Okay, let's go back to Matthew, the first gospel. So turn back through four gospels again to Matthew chapter four. This is Peter when he's getting called um, by Jesus. So here he is at the, I think they're by, Ty, the, uh, no, they're not by Tiberius here. They're at Galilee, right? So um, look at this, uh, verse 18 in Matthew chapter four. Verse 18, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw the two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So here's Peter's calling. And it requires him to drop his nets and leave the life of a fisherman. 
And now I want us to go three and a half years forward. The disciples have seen Jesus crucified, but they've seen something else. Turn now to John. I told you, you're going to need carpal tunnel syndrome uh, surgery after this morning. John chapter 20. Okay, so now you go to the last gospel right before the Acts and almost the last chapter. John 20. Look what they have seen besides the crucifixion. John 20, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them, so most of you are familiar with this, who, he had denied Jesus eight days before. Jesus came in the doors, having been shut, stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach your hand and put it into my side and be not believe, unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Okay, so they've seen Jesus crucified, but they've actually touched him alive. So they know all about the real resurrection at this point, okay? But just a few verses later, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, a big surprise. The very next chapter, they've returned to Galilee after seeing Jesus alive, and they come to one of the most pathetic passages, I think, in all of Scripture. Look at chapter 22, verse 2. They know Jesus is dead, but they know he's alive, and they know they've been called to save the world. Ready? There were together Simon, and, uh, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? I'm going fishing. Are you kidding? Think about this. He, he knows everything he needs to know. And you know what he does? He faults back, defaults back to pathetic wimp Peter. He goes back to the safety of his fishing nets. So what was Peter missing? Write it in. Without Pentecost, this is an incredibly important biblical concept. Without Pentecost, Peter had the knowledge of the resurrection, but he didn't have the power of the resurrection. That's why Jesus said, don't you dare leave Jerusalem. You'll know I've been raised. You'll know I've ascended to the Father, but don't you dare leave Jerusalem until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The resurrection's knowledge is not enough. It doesn't bring the power by itself. So without the reality of the indwelling spirit, you get believers who really have good intentions but can't follow through. I won't ask for testimonies. <laughs> Look at this. Look at the two Peters. Okay, this is a different first and second Peter. Ready? First Peter is Peter before Pentecost. He's pathetic. Ready? Peter after Pentecost. Second Peter is, you ready? He is ready to take on the Roman Empire. The first Peter was a joke. The second Peter was dangerous. The power of the resurrection must be added to the knowledge of the resurrection or you always have weak believers. So let's apply. Application number one. There's a risk of missing. Here's your blank. There's a risk of missing the importance of Pentecost altogether, but... There's also a risk of only getting part of Pentecost. Man, this could be another series. You ready? 
Some churches miss the importance of the Spirit-filled life altogether, but some choose their favorite part. You ready for the... This is why God gave the two exact manifestations at Pentecost. You ready? Manifestation number one, the tongues of fire represent purity. And the mighty rushing wind represents power. There's a problem when you have a fire church or a wind church. You ready for the two halves of Pentecost? Here's the wind half, here's your blank. If you desire the power, the wind, without the purity, the fire, the world rejects your message because, you ready? Because of your sin and hypocrisy. And does that sound like the American church or what? See, this is the great tragedy of the compromising church. It's the church that sees salvation as our sins forgiven, but not removed. So they live like the world while tipping their hat to Christ. And the world scoffs because you know what? The gospel that doesn't really transform is ugly. There's nothing more distasteful, folks, than sinful Christians. Honest sinners aren't distasteful at all. They're just living consistently with their worldview. At least they're honest. So, power without purity yields a church that the world can't stomach. They really can't. But there's another half. It's the fire half. You ready? If you get the purity, the fire, without the power, the wind, you ready? The world thinks you're irrelevant. So let's be honest. One of the potential errors that can occur in the holiness movement, which is our tradition you may be familiar with, is the idea that all that Pentecost did was purify believers and the the spirit-filled life is only about personal holiness. What a gigantic mistake. Here's the key concept, write it in. Pentecost didn't just make believers holy, it also made them powerful and bold. You see, the spirit-filled life doesn't just make believers righteous, it also empowers them to influence the world, to take on the forces of darkness. And you ready? And to love lost people so deeply that it makes them uneasy. So pure, so Christ-like, so given to others, so self-sacrificing, you ready? That it makes them uncomfortable, but it also makes them intrigued because they don't know anybody who lives like that. When a person lives a holy life like this, it creates a stir. But if a person's holiness is defined as merely sitting around and not sinning, then the world simply ignores us. So guess what? Nobody gets uptight about followers of Christ who do nothing more than stay out of trouble. Holiness lived to the full helps Christ to bring his kingdom to this world. And guess what? This gets you crossways with the world. You know why? Because the dominion of this earth is at war with our God's kingdom. And because the God of this world thinks he owns this place. And when a righteous believer shows up with power, it makes it look like God owns the place and that makes him really mad. Application number two. If believers really experience both purity and power, listen church, if believers experience both purity and power of Pentecost, they inevitably get in trouble with the world. Back to Acts chapter four. 
Oh, the good news is you're in John, you're in John 21, so just turn to the right a couple of chapters, Acts 24. Um, so guess what? Peter found out that the name of Jesus can get you in trouble. More on that in a minute for us. So you ready? They all get together to pray. And what should they pray for? Well, obviously, the prayer meeting's gonna be all about, oh, Lord, protect us. We've been in jail. We've sacrificed so much for you. Please, Lord, give us safety and protection, right? Acts chapter four, verse 23. Look at the text. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Okay, so notice, they start praying about the greatness of God and the faithfulness of God. It's a beautiful prayer. And then it comes, comes time for requests, right? They can hardly wait to get to it. Verse 29. <laughs> and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that the bond, your bondservants may speak your word with confidence. Are you kidding me? That's their prayer request? They've just been in jail. They didn't deny, pray for relief from the threats. You know what? They prayed for boldness. So guess what? If you really get both the power and the purity of Pentecost, you're gonna be persecuted. But fortunately, the word teaches application number three. You ready? Here's your blanks. While the word reveals that persecution of true believers is inevitable, it's inevitable. True believers, it's inevitable. It also promises courage and strength. So here's what happens. They got in trouble. They prayed for boldness. They got bold. They got thrown in prison again. But then they got a reprieve because an angel, angel broke them out of prison again. So what'd they do? They went right back to the temple and started preaching Jesus. And what happens? They get thrown in prison again. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 this is a remarkable part of scripture. If you've never really read through this and let it soak in, do it. Let it soak in. Verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. Remember who that is? This is who killed Jesus. And the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. So now wisely, Gamaliel, one of the council, the old wise elder, he says, don't kill him. But that doesn't get them off the hook. Now it gets downright painful. Look at verse 40 near the end of the chapter. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. And now we get to see the impact of the power of Pentecost. Look at this, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they've been beaten, they've been whipped, and what's their response? <laughs> they rejoice that they're worthy to suffer for the Lord and they just keep right on preaching. I don't know about you, but this convicts me. We have two kinds of historical understanding of Pentecost. 
something that was for a few people, a few thousand people in Jerusalem a long time ago, but isn't relevant to us anymore. Or a gospel that means that the power of the resurrection that they had is the power of the resurrection that Jesus wants us to have through the power and the purity of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Application number four. Church history shows that the changes we're seeing in our nation are reliable indications that persecution is coming. This is not the fun application, but it's short. See, the changes in the psyche of our country and the speed of the moral deterioration may be unprecedented in any culture in history. Uh, By the way, I'm not being prophetic here. You know, actually, if you really are a good historian and you really pay attention to Scripture, you can look a lot like a prophet. So notice this. It's obvious from Scripture and church history that we'll soon be in a place where the leaders of our culture, the legal system, the elite of society, and those who hold the power will aggressively turn against the testimony of Christ. It always does. Why? Because the kingdom of this world is at war with the kingdom of his Christ. That's why. And this is why we can't just get half of Pentecost, church. We must guard against the Christian life that's just quietly holy. We must guard against the Christian life that has purity but not power. We must pray not only for the fire, but for the mighty rushing wind. But, but not, why not just keep quiet? Stay faithful in our private lives. Why does God want people to be prepared for persecution? And this is the great reversal. It's the enormously bad joke that Satan, who's smarter than all of us and knows Scripture better than all of us, somehow always misses. This is the great news. Application number five, write it in. The enemy's plan to persecute the church, you ready for this, is our God's plan to save the lost. Isn't that amazing? Look at this. Let's pick up in Acts after Stephen was, has preached a powerful message. Turn to Acts chapter 7, right? He's declared Jesus as the Christ, and here's the response of the religious leaders. They, I mean, they are apoplectic. This is crazy. Look at this. Chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard this, <laughs> they were cut to the quick, and they, that, that's old, you know, that's old, like old Greek and English for, I mean, they fell down and had seizures, right? They were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit. Are we picking up on a pattern? We've all missed this. Why were they so amazing? Because they were willing to pay the price to have the fire burn them pure and have a rushing wind that made them dangerous so that they got in trouble. But look at this. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. This was the wrong thing to say. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man called Saul, named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and listen to this. And falling to his knees, he cried out the exact words Jesus said on the cross. Lord, do not hold this against them. Purity mixed with power. And having said this, He fell asleep. 
Stephen was the first Christian martyr, you probably know. His death was like blood in a shark tank. The forces arrayed against the church went nuts. And look what happened, verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. And Saul, you're familiar with this maybe, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Oh, no. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some of the devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. And now it gets worse. Look, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So look at this. Here's the first result. Here's your blank. Here's the first result of persecution. The church was ravaged and scattered. Sounds like big trouble, doesn't it? We'll look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered through, went about preaching the word. <laughs> and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began to proclaim Christ to them. So look what happened when the church was persecuted and scattered. You ready? The second result of persecution? Write it in. The gospel spread even to the Samaritans. You ready for this? The Samaritans, they were the farthest from the Lord. Think about this. They had run from God ever since the horrible idolatry of their founder, Jeroboam, in 931 BC, had taken the north away. And in the, God uses now the very blood of the saints to take the gospel to those who have not heard the truth for a thousand years. You ready for the key concept? I don't like it, but it's the hope. Look at this. Throughout history, the persecuted church has always been the most redemptive church. You see, when Satan has thought that he was destroying the church, in fact, he was carrying out God's plan to test and strengthen his people. As Satan has increased his wrath upon the faithful remnant, they become ever more powerful, hardened warriors, prepared for battle, impervious to pain. What a picture. Don't you love God sitting on the throne, chuckling at Satan? Oh, you're going to hurt them? Oh, my goodness. You're going to persecute them? Oh, no, what am I going to do? And the enemy, even in his persecution of the church, is merely a pawn in the hand of the Almighty. You ready for one of the great ironies in all of history? Every time Satan makes the life of believers harder, he actually is preparing them for war against him. Is God amazing? So should believers pray for ease and safety and comfort? Not if we really care about the salvation of the world. Let me say this as nicely as I can, which isn't very nice. But as you know, I have no pastoral credential to protect. I'm tenured at the U of A, so unless I do something illegal, you can't, do, you can't fire me. So um, <clears throat> you ready for this? Um, the pansy gospel has no power because it hasn't been tested. In America, you can show up to church and there's no cost involved. And is there any wonder why revival has not come to America? Because folks, revival is costly. So as you look at the early church, what was the event that he initi initiated? All the reactions that caused all the persecution? Pentecost. 
What led the beatings and imprisonment and jeering and martyrdom? The infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's what caused the ruckus. That's what took the ineffective, mediocre, self-centered, apathetic, compromising disciples and turned them into an army that changed the world. That's what caused everything. Without Pentecost, folks, Christians wimp out in front of little servant girls. They keep their mouths shut because they're worried about suffering. Without Pentecost, Christians are quiet and shy about our faith. Without Pentecost, believers are willing to settle for a comfortable Christianity that just gets them through till they get to heaven. American evangelicalism, isn't it? But when a believer becomes truly spirit-filled, everything changes, and they can't shut up anymore. No wonder so many of us avoid the mighty rushing wind. So let me ask you, do you actually want enough of God to get you in trouble? Enough to make a stir, enough that you won't be able to stop speaking the name of Jesus ever again. So how is it that we receive this incredible life of power and purity? It's actually simple. God's word is very clear with this promise. Perhaps you've never realized that this question is the specific issue that's at hand in a really familiar passage in Luke 11. Look at this passage with me. This is amazing to me. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. You ready for this? There's a, there are millions of people today hearing messages preached from there that says you can be healthy and wealthy if you come to Jesus. Because you know what? They don't read the paragraph. Look at the paragraph. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish, and he, will he not give him a, a snake instead, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion, will he? You ready for the context of the ask and you shall receive? Look at this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what the ask and you shall be given is about. The purity and the power. Pastor Josiah, come on up. So what's the call this morning? Now, listen very carefully. This is not a call to some dramatic emotional event. This is not for God to zap you with a fireball. And it's not a call to receive any spiritual gift specifically. It's a simple call to those who really want to be like Jesus. It's for those who found that no matter how hard you try, you fail. It's for those who realize that if all you have is your effort to be like Christ, <laughs> your Christian is gonna be one long series, your life is gonna be one long series of frustrations. I promised, but I can't. I promised, but I can't. I want to, but I can't. It's not in me, Lord. Oh, he loves it when we get there. Because then we're ready for Pentecost. Then we've learned enough as young believers to realize, even as a believer with all of my promises, I can't be like Jesus. Well, what a surprise. <laughs> so this morning is a simple call to bring all, all of you, every part 
every decision, every relationship to Christ, and just to surrender it. It's laying everything before the Lord and saying, Lord, I can't do it. I've tried. I surrender. I'm asking me to fill me. I'm asking you to fill me with your spirit. Peter, filled with the spirit. Stephen, filled with the spirit. Philip, filled with the spirit. Lord, could it be Dan, filled with the spirit? And Susie and Sally, filled with the spirit today, the power of the resurrection. You see, we were all created to be Peter after Pentecost because we were born after Pentecost. We were made for greatness, but there's a problem. It costs very little to be Peter before Pentecost. You can hide out in relative comfort and ease. You can slip out the back when things get tough. But let me ask you, (laughs) do you really want to be a wimp when you were made to be a warrior? Now, to answer that question, we have to realize that it costs everything to be Peter after Pentecost. But if you really give all to Christ and live into all that he's created you to be, you go from self-centered to self-sacrificing, from compromising to courageous, from lukewarm to blazing hot, from comfortable to dangerous. So, let me ask, are there some here this morning who don't want to settle for comfortable Christianity anymore? Is there anyone here who so wants to be like Jesus that you're willing to surrender every aspect of your life so that his spirit has complete control, so that you begin a path of power and purity that will grow for the rest of your life no matter what happens? You see, our part is simply, here's the great news. Our part is to simply lay our lives down, saying, I I don't have it, I can't do it. And the beauty is, his part is to supply the miracle of Pentecost. Stand with me. In a moment, the altars will be open. Let me ask you, do you really want, do you really want, do you really want to be pure and bold and powerful? It'll be costly. C.S. Lewis says it's like a death. You mean, you mean like those guys, what happened to them? Yeah. The beauty is if you do that, you get dangerous. Are you willing to surrender all this morning, even if it means that you have to leave everyone and everything else behind? And even if you're the only one who responds, the only one, all alone, you and Jesus, if that's what you want, then just lay everything down. Receive the fullness of the Spirit of Christ in your life. If you know God is calling to do a work in your life this morning, then just come as we sing.